Today we're in the Gospel of Mark, as we've been for quite a long time, but especially for Lent right now, we are going through uh, Mark's Gospel, starting in chapter 8 to chapter 16. And today we're at chapter 9, verses 2 to 9, uh, the King's glorious transfiguration. Uh, God has given our family, my family that is, the blessing of living in Switzerland for five years. One of the joys of living in Switzerland was the excursion to the Swiss Alps that you see behind me, the Alps, with family, with visitors, friends that will come and see us, Bible school retreats, church retreats, local and regional conferences as well that were conducted there to be gathered together and to worship the Lord of creation with God-shaped mountains as the backdrop of your worship looking through that glass was awesome and glorious. No PowerPoint or keynote slides needed. God's creation was our background. And to go up a mountain and encounter the Lord God Almighty and witness his radiant glory is breathless. It's life-changing for all of us that have ventured that way. I believe that is what Peter, John, and James experienced when they journeyed with Jesus up a mountain. Glory and beauty in the person of Jesus and in the voice of the creator God himself. Eugene Peterson says the word beauty does not show up in the story, but beauty is what the disciples experienced that day. Beauty that takes our breath away. He went on to say, and the light does not fall on this form from above and from outside. Rather, it breaks forth from the form's interior, from the personhood of Jesus. The light reveals who Jesus is as the voice of God speaks. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. As one author notes, this is the celebration of the visible. The invisible God become visible in the person radiating with whiteness and light and glory, Jesus Christ himself, who insists on being seen and not hidden. I want us to keep in mind that the story of the transfiguration follows the first prophecy or prediction of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He just told his disciples that they need to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him. He just told them uh, that, uh, who he is in the revelation uttered by Peter, that he is the Christ. It's a road marked with suffering that leads to glory and beauty. Keep that thought in mind as we go through these verses for today. Verses 2 to 3. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with them and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured, transformed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach him, says Mark, the gospel writer. See, when Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, it was an event that revealed the light of God's new life already breaking into this world. The light of his divine nature shined through the veil of his mortal flesh. As you can see in the title for this part of our passage, Jesus transfigured, shine, Jesus shine. We remember the song we used to sing so much back in Europe. Filled this land with your father's glory was one of the verses. 
The dazzling light that day on the mountain brings to mind pictures of the Northern Canadian lights that we experience in Canada and other places of the world as well. They're breathtaking as well. <laughs> to see a view like that behind me, as awesome as the Northern lights are, they are no match for the transfigured Jesus in dazzling white clothes, whiter than anyone in the world can bleach them, to quote Mark's words again. That moment on the mountain, heaven invaded earth, the glory of Jesus the Messiah was revealed. As we sing that song, Shine Jesus Signs, we come to that last verse. As we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness, ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our lives tell your story. See, the bright light of the transfiguration affirms life, a light that shines, never without hope or confidence. This light speaks a promise that Jesus is here right now among us, through his Holy Spirit. When we look at the high mountain in this passage, it recalls the commission of Moses on Mount Horeb, though this might be Mount Hermon or Mount Tobar. The sudden and unexplained brightness of Jesus' clothing singles the presence of God or God's angel, as Daniel 7, 9, where the ancient one is depicted in coming in clothing that is white as snow. Whiteness here connotes a light not accessible to human beings in scriptures and in Jewish tradition. We have this quote from Douglas Moo, white shining or white clothing often symbolize purity and victory and is associated in Jewish apocalyptic writing with the coming Messiah. We find a lot of uh, allusions to this in the book of Revelation itself. Purity, victory through the wearing of white dazzling clothes. Is there room in our lives for visions we cannot explain? That's a good question to ask, ask ourselves. I'll let you answer that yourself. You see, the story of the transfiguration takes us to one of those thin places, those liminal places where the membrane separating heaven and earth becomes transparent, becomes visible, and we can see things of God more fully, more clearly. We say in theological jargon, that's a revelation or that's a theophany. In this story, we see Jesus unveiled. His full identity shines through, even if it is only for a moment. We know that this is the Son of God as we read this text. As we move on, we look at Elijah, Moses, and Peter's unfit response. Let's hear Mark's words here. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then we have in brackets, verse 6, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened, so frightened. The appearance of Moses and Elijah not only exceeds the limits of what is usually thought possible, but also connects Jesus with two of Israel's major prophetic figures, both historical pillars of the Jewish faith. No one has a clue to what the trio is talking about here in the Gospel of Mark, that is. Some suggestive uh, uh, suggestions flow in Luke's account of it. But we have Jesus in conversation with these two strong foundations of the Jewish faith, Moses and Elijah. Though Mark's is different because he puts 
Elijah before Moses. Peter's response is like looking at a light bulb, someone said, and going blind instead of looking around the room and understanding what the light from the bulb reveals. He decides that this transcendent moment, this revelation moment, this theophany moment is missing something. And he suggests that it wouldn't be any trouble for him to build some dwellings. One for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. I don't think he's got, got it yet that Jesus is greater than Elijah and Moses. He's kind of seen them all the same at this point. Peter was thinking, let's mark the spot and then we will never forget what happened here. Let's build a memorial. Let's build these three things and we'll come to visit it every year to remember this moment in life. Peter is innovative, but his innovation is another one of his failures because what he needs at this moment is not innovation. What he needs is to absorb and understand the revelation and the theophany of God in Christ Jesus. Someone entitled this seed, Peter's Failed Business Plan. Peter attempts to commemorate the occasion. However well intended, reduces the event to a photo business opportunity. It also contrasts sharply with his earlier rejection of Jesus' prediction about his own passion and his suffering and being crucified and dying. Remember that? No, you can't die. You're the Messiah. And then what did Jesus say after that? He said, Satan, get behind me. It's amazing, isn't it, that Peter's reject, rejected the suffering that lies ahead, but he's too eager to welcome the glory. How true is that of us as well as disciples of Christ? That we, like Peter, welcome the glorious moments, the time in worship, the time with the saints, but we complain about the suffering that we have to go through in life. So before we pick on Peter's unfit response for thinking that he can contain heaven with some temporary tense, consider how many times the church itself, maybe you or maybe I included, have attempted an attempt to harness the glory of God, God to consumerize the glory of God. Mark even makes excuses for Peter. He's babbling because he's terrified. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. But Peter is a lot like we are, is he not? Keep the glory, but I don't want any part of the suffering. Let's move on in the story. The voice of God, listen to him. Starting at verse 7 to verse 9. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and the voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, here we're talking about the resurrection again. So although Peter got caught up in the transformation of Jesus' appearance, the presence of those pillars of faith, Elijah and Moses, what happened next transcended even those earlier events. While Peter was making his offer to build this enterprise, this building of tents, this portable buildings enterprise that he was willing to venture on, a cloud comes on the scene. Remember the cloud in the book of Exodus? It's about the glory of God and Moses' encounter. And God's booming voice speaks through that cloud to the people present there. And they fell face down. In the book of Matthew, 
And Scott Hosey, he kind of interprets this passage in this light. Listen to these words. This is my son whom I love. Look at him. Isn't this display something? I mean, just get a load of that light show. That's what I expected God the Father said. But that's not what God says. We read the passage. And why not? Isn't it all about the light show? Isn't it all about the, the pomp and circumstances of, of, of the entertainment part of the Christian faith? You know, we have all seen such visual, visual spectacles ourselves. These typically happen every year during the halftime at the Super Bowl, unless there's a COVID crisis, of course. Or at the New Year's Eve countdown, unless there's a COVID crisis, of course. But here in Mark 9, at the climax of one of the Bible's greatest visual light shows of glory, of God's glory, God the Father comes and advises not that the disciples look at him, continue to gaze at him, continue to build tents for him, continue to harness the glory of God. No, what does God the Father say? This is the attic part to the words that were also said at Jesus' baptism. What God adds here is, listen to him. Listen to him, which brings to mind the passage in Deuteronomy 18 about Moses. See, the overshadowing cloud recalls that divine presence in the cloud of the Exodus and at Mount Sinai. The divine voice identifies Jesus directly to the disciples. No secondhand info here. It comes right from God himself. And he commands the disciples to listen. Listen to my son. What? No more light show and glory? No, it's time to move on. You can't stay in church all day long. It's time to go out and to enact the word that you received. See, the importance of listening becomes clear by contrast with the scene that has preceded it, in which everything was visual, which is good and dandy, but there's a time that you need to move on from visual to listening and then in the Hebrew context, the word to, to listen also encompasses to obey. After glorious experiences of, of glory, we are reminded that obedience is the next step of our faith journey. Oh, that's pick up the cross. That's denying myself. That's going to my death for the sake of God, the kingdom, and Jesus, his son. Oh, you're starting to get it now. It entails suffering. And the command to keep on listening to my son. See, visions come and go, my friends, but the word of God remains forever. It's eternal. And it's message. The need to listen emerges at least as early as the parable of the sower in chapter 4, which we've done a few months ago. Anyone with ears to hear, to listen. He who has ears, listen. Listen to him, not to me. Listen to Jesus, his voice, the Holy Spirit which urges the disciples to pray, pay attention, should pray as well, pay attention to what you hear. The voice demanded that they listen to Jesus because he is the one who will speak for God in this new age of his kingdom. His kingdom is at hand. His kingdom is near. His kingdom is here, even right now, as it was in the day that he first announced it to Peter, James, and John. Listen to him, what he tells you that he must suffer and die. Listen to him when he tells you that you must deny yourself. Listen to him when he tells you that you must take up your own cross. Listen to him 
When he tells you that you must follow him no matter what, listen to him and give him your unqualified obedience. Listen to him and you will find your salvation. For remember what Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Listen to him that said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen to him who said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Listen to him who said, blessed are the pure in heart for they they shall see God. Listen to him. See, God is appointing Jesus as the supreme and only teacher. It's no longer about Moses. It's no longer about Elijah. Yes, we still study them. Yes, we still got to understand them and in their context. But now the greater one has arrived according to the letter of Hebrews. Read it in your spare time. Listen to my son. Jesus Christ. As the voice echoes from the skies and the cloud vanishes. It's amazing that in the modern church today we try to create fog machines and have some smoke blowing and turn off all the lights. And this probably took place in the nighttime so you could see Jesus' brilliant clothes, but that's not why. Luke says that they were sleeping because everybody. But when God's glory began to move from that spot, we don't know where Moses and Elijah went. Everything's kind of just disappeared, vanished. I don't know, they pull out the plug. I don't know what happened there. And all that's left is Jesus. Peter, James, and John. Back to normal again. Jesus in his inner circle. See, what the disciples needed to understand and what we need to understand is that Jesus is both the Son of God, powerful agent of healing and subject of dazzling glory, and the Son of Man who will be betrayed and persecuted and crucified. You see, my friends, the disciples in common with many followers of Jesus throughout the church's life want to have the glory that they can see without the message that they must hear and obey. But the two cannot be separated in the kingdom of God. They are one and the same. Mark constantly lifts both aspects of Jesus' identity, relentlessly recalling that the suffering will yield to triumph and that the triumph cannot be had without the price of the cross. There is no glory without the cross of Christ. You see, as Eugene Peterson notes, on the road, Peter tried to avoid the cross and on the mountain, he tried to grab the glory. What's going on here? Peter wanted a salvation in which no one has to be inconvenienced. Hello, isn't that the modern cry of our day? People want a salvation in which no one needs to be inconvenienced. He also tried to frame divine glory and box it up so he can franchise it and make some money off of it. See, Mark invites us to die with Christ so that we may shine in Christ, shine Jesus, shine and be free. The same dazzling presence that Peter and James and John experienced on the mountain that day now illuminates human hearts, you and I, if you are in Christ, sustaining fatigued Christians and keeping them faithful. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. 
He also says we're not like Moses anymore that had to put a veil to hide the radiance. We live as Christ followers without a veil, brilliantly radiating the, the glory of God. Shine, Jesus, shine. You see, God in his goodness and love for mankind has surrounded us with signposts, each pointing us and inviting us into the wonder and the beauty of his kingdom, to go deeper and deeper into the mysteries of his love. As the psalmist says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 19, verse 1. Are we listening? Listening to him, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of glory. See, given the choice of glory on a mountain or death on the cross, which is more attractive, my friends? I'll say it again. Given the choice of glory on a mountain or death on a cross, which is more attractive? While Jesus' disciples journey with him, Jesus brings them up the mountain to encounter God. And after a period of revelation and theophany and transformation and transfiguration and, and wondrous voice of God speaking in a beautiful, dazzling light glory of of his son, they got to need to come back again. The lesson, my friends, <laughs> that Peter finally got is he can't stay on the mountain forever. It's a time to come back down into the valley where we must continue our battle, our joust with the evil one. Yet in the midst of suffering, God's presence shines through as Jesus continues to make his way to Jerusalem. I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, as words of encouragement as the glory of God goes with us. For our light and monetary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Rest assured in the glory of the Son of God. God bless.